got a Bible, uh, open it up to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 11 this morning. We're tracking along with Jesus and his disciples as they make their way toward Jerusalem. We're going to be in this series, uh, minus a few Sundays here and there. Of, uh, we're going to be in the series through August. And so uh, February 14th, we're going to pause, talk about marriage, give a message on that. Easter, obviously, we'll talk about the resurrection. But for the most part, we're tracking along with Jesus and his disciples. What is a shamelessly bold prayer that you are laying before your Father in heaven right now? What is a shamelessly bold prayer that you are praying right now in your life? I want that question to sit on your mind and on your hearts as we work through this passage because we're going to come back to it at the end. Salvation of a loved one, the return of a prodigal, the miraculous provision, the return of the joy of your salvation, the healing and health of a family member, the adoption or conceiving of a child, the the freedom from an entangling sin, a powerful move of the Lord in our church, in your household, in our nation, a shamelessly bold prayer. The greatest activity we could be about in the year ahead is prayer. And I pray that the Lord's faithfulness might abound in powerful and God-glorifying ways through both our own hearts as well as how we see the Lord answer prayer in our lives. In our Crosspoint Culture Statement, we have the the following sentence. I think it's fitting for us to read today. It says, we pray because our God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and as a result, prayer changes things, including our own hearts. We pray because our God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and as a result, prayer changes things, including our own hearts. And in God's good providence, we come to a teaching of the Lord on prayer here as January comes to a close, as we continue to walk by faith into 2021. We pray that this year we might bear fruit in being active in our prayer life, a shamelessly bold prayer. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Therefore, because Jesus is our mediator, our high priest, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, and there we will be met with help and grace, and mercy. This morning, in Luke's account, here in chapter 11, we get to go to the Jesus School of Prayer. Welcome, class. To you Gold Star Front Row students, welcome. To you Back Row Baptists, welcome. To you Middle of the Road Moderates, welcome. Glad you're here. I am not your teacher. Jesus is our teacher, and we are all his students. We are disciples of Jesus, and so as disciples, we are seeking to learn and grow and to become more like him. We want to pray like the disciples ask of Jesus here in Luke 11. We want to pray, Lord, teach us to pray. And through Jesus' teaching here on prayer, he'll remind us of the character of our Father in heaven, how we as sons and daughters relationally depend upon him. We'll see the goodness of the Father as well, which that truth that we have a Father in heaven and that he is infinitely good, that that truth should lead us to confidence in prayer, including shamelessly bold prayers that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help us in time of need. This is what is known as the Lord's Prayer. Matthew has an account of it in his gospel as well. Luke does here. There's some debate about does this, do these two accounts refer to the exact same situation or different ones? Matthew's account is a public setting in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke's account here is more of a private setting. The wording is slightly different, but the content and the outline, the structure is, is very, very similar. So here we go. Verse 1, he was praying in a certain place. And when Jesus finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Don't miss this obvious but encouraging fact. Jesus prayed. He didn't just teach on prayer, but he desired to pray. He wanted to pray. He needed to pray, and we do as well. We follow Jesus not just in his teaching on prayer, but also in his life of prayer, his, his way of life, his practice of it. And I love that the disciples ask, teach us, Lord. We want to grow. We want to learn. We, we know we haven't arrived. A sure path toward a self-righteous Pharisee is when we be, begin to think that we have arrived. And we no longer are being taught or shaped by the Father on his potter's wheel. I love the childlike quality of the disciples here to learn. At conversion, when we give our lives to Jesus in surrender, we don't instantly become great at prayer. We don't instantly know and understand all the scriptures. We don't instantly become great at all the spiritual disciplines that lead us toward godliness. No, our justification by faith alone and grace alone, it leads to a lifelong sanctification that is fueled and driven by the grace of God. We never stop going to school. We never stop this posture of teach us, grow us, Lord. We want to become more like you. And so when it comes to prayer, we're always learning, always growing. Don't expect to be great at it on day one of your faith. And also don't expect to not grow in it if you don't practice or talk to your Father in heaven. You won't grow if you don't begin, and you won't grow if you don't continue in this posture of teach us. And notice that plural nature of teach us. Too often we see prayer as a personal practice. And that is certainly one element of it. We see Jesus doing that here in Luke 11. But there is also a community together alongside brothers and sisters. United nature to prayer. Teach us. Teach your people, your family, your kids to pray. Jesus goes on in verse 2. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us and do not bring us into temptation. So what we see in the Lord's Prayer is both a prayer that we could pray verbatim, word for word. Some of you might have grown up doing that on Sunday mornings or before bed or before meals. But even more so, Jesus is not saying Hey, here are the only words you can pray. He's giving us a, a model prayer, an outline, a structure to work with. Here are some themes you can pray. At some point early in my faith, I, I heard the acrostic ACTS, A-C-T-S, as a structure for prayer. I still consider it to this day. I, I think it's a fitting one. You probably even hear that sometimes in the pastoral prayers here on Sunday mornings. But the A stands for adoration or worship. C stands for confession, confession of sin. T stands for thanksgiving, so we're praying 
God, here are the things we're grateful for. Thank you, Father. And then S would stand for supplication, which is just, which is just a big word for requests. Here's what we are asking of the Lord. And I've always loved it because it forces me to not ask for things until the end, which is a perfectly biblical thing to do, laying things before the Father, asking things of Him. But it forces my heart to worship and adore and confess sin and work through my own heart and search me and examine my motives and and thank you, Father, for these things. And I want to express my gratitude. And then I also want to request and lay petitions before you. Jesus says, whenever you pray, reminding us of the truth of 1 Thessalonians 5, that we pray constantly. It's this thread to our days. It's not just during structured times like a Sunday morning or before meals or those kind of things. It's throughout our day. It's as we walk back into our home or as we walk into work. Whenever you pray, say, Father. Jesus starts with describing who our Father is and He is or who our God is, and He is our Father, which that truth then establishes the foundation of our prayer life. Our Father, it's collective. We are following Jesus together. It's a personal relationship, but it's never a private one, so it's a collective nature. Fourteen times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus prays to God as Father 60 times. This idea is brand new to the disciples and the crowds that are listening. Prayers rooted in our relational dependence upon our Father. God is not just a force, and He is most certainly not far away. He's close. He's involved in His children's lives. He's loving. There is a warmth and intimacy, and yet also a loving authority in the picture of a Father. Now, for many of you, some of you, the picture of God as Father is something you struggle with because of your earthly dad. Others of you had or have a dad who honored the Lord or is honoring the Lord as a way of life, but others of you didn't have that example. Dad walked out. He left you. He left your mom. There was abuse. There was neglect. Someone came up and shared that after the 9 a.m. service, how talked about her father's wound. Maybe dad was addicted to work, a substance, a hobby, whatever it was. So when you think dad, you don't think warmth, intimacy, closeness, loving authority. You think of all the opposite of those words, and you have what's called a father's wound on your life. You sought to be dependent upon your earthly father, but he was not dependable. And so now you're applying that exact same narrative to your heavenly father who is not made in the image of your earthly dad. Do not judge God by the experience you had with your earthly father. It is heartbreaking, the father's wounds that are left on lives. But the broken relationship does not have to define or it doesn't have to define how you relate to God as father. He sees that brokenness and hurt, wants to minister to that area of your heart. He wants to do that through His Holy Spirit, through His Word, through the body of Christ, the community of believers around you. We are all like runaway, rebellious children, wanting to do our own thing. And yet through Christ, when we give our lives to Him, God adopts us into the family of God. This is John 1.12. And church is family. And now we have all these brothers and sisters 
around us in this growing family of believers in God as our Father. So to learn to pray, we get a picture of a great dad with his kids. We move away from the overly formal and into the context of family. I've had the God-given and gracious opportunity to be a dad to a son and daughter and soon enough children by marriage. I love being a dad to Maddie and Eli. I love being a future dad to their future children or their future kids and their future people. But by no means am I a perfect dad. My, my kids would attest to that. They could probably hand you a binder of, hey, here's all the evidence of how dad was saved by grace alone and not by works. I fall short as a dad to this day, and by the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, I want to strive to reflect God as father to my kids, even in their adult life. And I know you fathers share the same desire. The foundation of our prayer life is God as father, and when we get that, we won't come to him as a far-off force or a mystical presence, but a holy creator who sent his one and only son to rescue us from judgment, rescue us from our sins so that we could relate to him as father, so that we could be adopted, brought in, secure in his hands, safe in his care. If we get that God is father, then you and I will pray. We'll pray. Then we won't think, well, I'm doing this wrong or I feel stupid or as Hebrews 4.16 tells us, we will come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence because we know the one who is on the throne is not just creator and judge, but he's dad. Father, your name be honored as holy. The name of God the Father represents the totality of his character. And we want the name of the Father. We want his character, his name to be honored, worshiped, revered. We want his kingdom to come meaning we want the reign and rule of the Lord to continue to take up ground and dominion in this world. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus ushered it in. And so the kingdom is already here and yet not fully realized because we're on this side of heaven, this side of eternity where death and sorrow will be no more. We live in this tension of it's already here, but it's not yet fully realized. And in that tension, we pray. We pray, your kingdom come. We want his will to be accomplished in and through his people. As citizens of heaven, we seek the things above, set our minds and hearts on things above, not on earthly things. So whenever we pray, we, we pray God-centered kingdom come in light of eternity prayers. In God's kingdom, good overcomes evil. Wrongs are made right. Justice and peace are established. Light pierces darkness. Light sweeps away, pushes back darkness. The, the greatness of God's love is revealed. The fullness of His truth and grace, your kingdom come prayers, are focused on present day, and at the same time, they have in light of them, a second coming is coming. The second advent of Jesus, His return. He also says, give us each day our daily bread. We pray for the Lord to meet our daily needs because we don't just need the Lord at conversion. We don't just need the Lord when we uh, need to get out of a jam. We need the Lord at all times throughout our day. It's daily bread, meeting our needs. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. We need the Lord's forgiveness, and we need reminded that in Christ we are forgiven. 
And his sacrifice was good once and for all. His sacrifice was sufficient. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. And we also need the Lord's power in order to forgive others. You probably have someone in mind right now. Someone you need to extend forgiveness to. We need reminded of how greatly we have been forgiven so that we are quick to forgive others. We don't want to be the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18 who is forgiven of this massive debt, never able to be repaid in his lifetime. Forgiven of that by his master, and then the servant turns around and begins to choke and get angry and hateful toward a servant or toward a, someone else who owes him just pennies. It's the comparison. that Oh, we've been forgiven of this, but now we can't forgive this one horizontally because it's so small. We don't want to become that ungrateful servant, that bitter servant. We forgive because Christ first forgave us. And do not bring us into temptation. James 1, 13, 14 tells us that, that God doesn't tempt. So rather, this is saying, Lord, we don't want to be tempted. We don't want to mess around in the lion's den. We don't, we don't want to play by the edge of the cliff. Lead us away from that. Keep the enemy's schemes out of sight. Help us see the, your goodness and help us see the lies behind the devil's traps and snares. Where the, while they might seem attractive on the outside, help us to see beyond that and see how empty and enslaving they are. Snuff out that desire in my flesh that is attracted to chase after sin. Reveal the lie of sin and help me hunger and thirst for your righteousness instead. I've always loved 2 Timothy 2.22. I think it's fitting here. It says, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do not bring us into temptation. Enable us to, to flee and at the same time enable us to pursue. Pursue the things of the Lord alongside other believers. Notice that Jesus is teaching us to pray that not only do we want to see the Father's name honored and revered and worshipped out there, we want the Father's name to be honored and worshipped here in our own hearts, in our own life. And so we, we honor the Father, we set Him apart, we worship Him when we depend upon Him for our daily needs. And when we receive His forgiveness and walk in that forgiveness and as well as extend that forgiveness to others, and when we flee temptation and pursue the things of the Lord. But isn't our Father, who is holy and set apart and on high, isn't He distracted with other people and other issues? I mean, shouldn't we not bother Him with our issues? He's got so many kids. I mean, I'm sure He's got others to deal with. We can all think of people in our lives. We go, well... Their issues seem to be larger than mine right now, so maybe I'll kind of wait in line. Or do, do I have to wait two or three weeks out to get an appointment with him? Is there a waiting room that we're all kind of reading? Terrible, like dumb magazines, kind of waiting our turn? If we are ever tempted to think that, in the parable and illustration that Jesus will give us next, he will remind us of how approachable and good the Lord is. And how we should approach him whenever we pray with confidence. And it should lead to praying 
shamelessly bold prayers. Verses 5 through 8. Jesus continues to teach. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, the disciples who are listening to this story are cringing at the awkwardness, at the social humiliation that is involved here. A friend has had a visitor show up at, at the house late at night. And in that day, you didn't stock up on bread for two weeks. You got what you needed for that day. And when the bread ran out, it ran out. And this late night visitor was not expected, so extra bread wasn't purchased earlier that morning, so there's no convenience store to run out and get some. The host has no food to offer their guest, and this is humiliating, let alone being a bad host. And the solution is not to say, well, um, tough luck, welcome, pillow and sheets are down the hallway and um, I'll get you some bread in the morning. No need, that the need that he's experiencing here as a host is going to drive him to his neighbor's house. It's midnight. And in that day, the house was basically one room. So the, so, so the family's all sleeping. The door would have had this wooden or iron bar placed through rings in the door panels so the door is loud to knock on, let alone open. So you know what? You're going to wake the baby. You're going to wake the baby. And anyone who's done the hard, prayerful work of getting a child to sleep doesn't want to wake the baby. You can't knock on that door and have it not disrupt the entire household. And yet the friend who's experiencing a need will have the nerve to go pound on that other friend's door this is socially humiliating. But the breadless friend doesn't care. He's going to ask anyways. Need drives him to walk over with shameless boldness, knock on that door. <laughs> Baby wakes up. Dad's irritable. Mom is scowling. Dogs are barking. <laughs> Don't bother me. <laughs> Don't bother me. Over and over and over, back and forth. I will tell, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, repeated knocking at midnight, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, if the grumpy, sleep-deprived neighbor is supposed to depict our Heavenly Father, then our hearts are not endeared right now. But Jesus is not comparing the two. He's contrasting the two. The neighbor's irritation and reluctance is not a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Rather, Jesus is saying, if an irritated person responds and gives, how much more will your gracious Father respond? If even this irritable neighbor who is willing to help how much more will our Heavenly Father, who is good and kind, be gracious to help us 
in our time of need. This is a contrasting picture. The breadless friend's request at the door is causing chaos in the neighbor's house. Your prayerful request is not causing chaos in your father's house. The neighbor gives bread begrudgingly. Your father gives willingly. Loved ones, listen to me. Stop thinking that your heavenly father is like a sleep-deprived father who is irritated by your request, even if it feels repetitive. Your heavenly father is not surprised. He's been waiting on you to pray about it. He's been waiting on you to hear your voice. You didn't wake him from a nap. He's already oriented to the heart of the issue because remember, he's omni-everything. Omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. He already knows. He's waiting on you. A couple more takeaways from this story, from the vantage point of the friend who got that knock at the late-night visitor. First of all, the breadless friend is probably irritated as well. It's midnight. Don't you know anybody else around this town? Can't you go knock on somebody else's door? Why are you bothering me? You know I'm probably going to be out of bread. Have you ever found yourself praying and thinking, I can't believe I'm praying about this. I can't believe I have to pray about this. I can't believe that there's this need suddenly in my lap that now I have to pray about. I'm living one right now. I've lived them before, so have you. And when we experience those, we are reminded that we first go to prayer. We ask our Heavenly Father who is good and gracious and not grumpy and irritable. The second takeaway, the breadless friend is thinking, I can't solve this problem. I have to ask. I lack resources to handle this. I'm forced to depend upon my friend down the street. Inability drives us to prayer, loved ones. If you're experiencing inability right now, it should be a God-given, gracious invitation leading you toward prayer. That's good for our hearts because we are not omni-anything. Jesus tells us in John 15 that apart from Him as our life-giving vine, we can do nothing. And so we approach His throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Verse 9 and 10 So I ask you, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. And to each one, there's a corresponding action of the father toward his children. The point here is not that God is our divine butler or a vending machine of A5. That's what I want. That's what I wish for. The point here is that God is the one who supplies, that God responds, that he doesn't ignore. He's not asleep. He's willing. He's gracious. He's good, infinitely good. We find, we open, we receive, not because of us, but because of his goodness, his holiness, his kindness. And to remind us of that is where Jesus goes next in verses 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give 
the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. How much more? Jesus is saying even imperfect, ordinary, earthly dads who love their kids will not give evil gifts to their kids. How much more will our perfect Heavenly Father respond to His sons and daughters? And one of the greatest gifts the Father has ever given to us is not only His Son in the flesh as our rescuer, our redeemer, but also the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit is resurrection power in our lives. According to Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. And we've all faced those situations of, I don't know how to pray. Well, in those moments, the Holy Spirit is praying and interceding on our behalf. Let's talk about the elephant in the room briefly. And that is unanswered prayer. Times when we have been asking, seeking, knocking, and the door is not opened to the extent that we thought it should be, or a different door is opened, the answer doesn't come down the pipeline in the way that we thought it should. We've all been there. I have boldly prayed for the healing of loved ones, including alongside many of you, loved ones who we share, your spouses, your parents. I have been driving to the hospital before, begging God to heal and save a loved one. And he hasn't answered in the way that I wanted him to. He brought eternal healing, but it was in eternity. It was not on this side of heaven, which is what I was boldly praying for. Why did that go down that way? I don't know. And neither do you. We probably won't know this side of heaven. What we do know this side of heaven is our Father in heaven has not fallen asleep. He hasn't walked out on his kids. He hasn't become unloving. His character, his goodness has not changed. All of that should lead us toward prayer, to depend upon him. John Piper included this reference in a message. I think it's fitting. Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor from 350 years ago, asked in his book, Body of Divinity, why does God delay on answer to prayer? In other words, why would God ever keep us asking, seeking, and knocking when he could respond sooner? Watson gives four answers. The first one, because he loves to hear the voice of prayer. The second one, that he may humble us. We may too easily assume we merit some ready answer or that he is at our beck and call like a butler not as a sovereign Lord and loving Father. The third one, because he sees we are not yet fit or ready for the mercy we seek. And I especially like this next sentence. It may be he has things to put in place in us or in our church or in the world. There are a million pieces to the puzzle. Some things go first to make a place for the others. And finally, that the mercy we pray for may be more prized and maybe sweeter when it comes. How much more is our Father in heaven? What is a shamelessly bold prayer that you're laying before your Father in heaven? What is a shamelessly bold prayer that you need to begin praying? 
What is a shamelessly bold prayer that you need to be praying in your household, in your workplace, with your kids, with your spouse, with your friends, your community group? What is a shamelessly bold prayer that you are praying as a part of this church, as a citizen of this state or this nation? How much more is our Father in heaven? How much more? Let's spend two or three minutes praying, laying these things before the Father, and then I'll close us. Father, I pray that you would continue to teach us to pray. Teach us to revere and worship your name. Teach us to rely upon you for our daily needs. Teach us to forgive as you have forgiven us. Teach us to flee temptation and pursue righteousness and goodness. Teach us to come to you with shameless boldness in our need and our inability. Teach us to ask and seek and knock and teach us to trust in the waiting, to trust you and your goodness, our identity in Christ, our relationship with you, our security in that you're our Father. Teach us to trust in the waiting and teach us to depend upon you as our Father. We pray because you're good in every single way. You are trustworthy in every single way. You are more than able in every single way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.